got a show for you. I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely. This is the podcast. The friends will be along in a moment. I am recording this episode from Los Angeles, California. I'm staying with some friends of mine that I met at Edinburgh Fringe last year, and uh, it's... I can't quite say it's good to be back in the States because uh, I really like it over there on the other side of the pond, and uh, it's way too hot here for me. I, I don't like the heat. I like the cold. Like, fall was definitely hitting the UK for the last couple of weeks, and that is my preferred time of year. So I have to wait another week or two to get back up to Bellingham for fall. Anyway, uh, Disney had their own version of Comic-Con a few weeks ago, and people can buy tickets for only $90 if they're already members of this D23 club, which costs money to join. That's, uh, okay. Is this feeling I'm feeling what makes my parents' faces do that thing that they do when I tell them I'm going to a new Avengers film? Oh, goodness. I'm turning into Mark Marin. Anyway, I've commented on something in the current zeitgeist. Now let us speak of it no more. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less, including these 11. Who imposed this rule? Video Game Zinesters by Anna Anthropy. It can be crushing to read a pile of statistics about how poor representation in various industries is. Thankfully, this book not only shines light on a problem, it's got a full-to-bursting toolbox of solutions in the other, on the other hand. Anna Anthropy's book is part zine, part memoir, part manifesto, and part shared kink experience. And yet, it all kind of works together. To truly understand this artist's perspective on video games, you kind of have to understand the artist. Though, if shared kink isn't your bag, I understand. It's not mine. Doming through memoir aside, this book is a thoughtful examination of the state of the video games industry circa 2012. Though a few strides have been made, this book predates Anna Sarkeesian, for instance, its message still rings painfully true. Video games have far less diversity of voices than they should have. Not merely content to point out this disparity, Anna Anthropy spends the final third of the book suggesting ways her readers could change things. I was inspired, so I made a Wii Adventure game. To play it, visit www.strangelyandfriends.com slash secret minus page. That's the minus symbol. This is my chat with my dear friend J.D. Henshaw. J.D. is a Scottish theater and fringe producer who lives in Dundee, Scotland, and who runs Sweet Venues in Edinburgh. Sweet Venues is the venue that I've taken my show to for the last four or five years at Edinburgh Fringe. JD is a delightful sweetheart and a wonderful friend and someone that I'm very pleased to get to work with. I stayed with him for about a week in Dundee and at the end of the week we sat down and had a chat. So this is that chat. I hope you folks enjoy it. I'm sitting with my dear friend and uh, sometime collaborator JD Henshaw at his flat in beautiful, sunny Dundee, Scotland. And uh, we're gonna chat about stuff. I Sometimes I have a guest on and I'm like, 
this is what I want to talk to you about. You know, you did this thing or you did that thing or whatever. But uh, you do a lot of things. What is your official, like, title, I guess, that you would say? Because you, you produce fringe venues. Yeah, I do produce fringe venues. That is one of the things I do. Um, Grand High Idiot. Uh, <laughs> um, I officially am the artistic director of Sweet Venues and the artistic director of Sweet Productions. Officially. And Sweet has venues not only at the Edinburgh Fringe, but you also produce at Brighton Fringe and there's a horror festival? Yep, yep. So we produce, well, we produce year round in Brighton. We've got permanent space in Brighton uh, based at Work Central on Middle Street, which mm -hmm. is lovely. They're a really lovely partner to have. Um, and from there, that means we can produce fringe scale work all year round. Um, and then, yeah, we've got a couple of festivals that we run down there. Uh, we do an International Women's Week festival at the start of the year. And October is Horror Fest, Brighton Horror Fest. All things spoopy. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, speaking of horror, last night we watched probably one of the best films I've ever seen. I would agree with that statement, yes. <laughs> Yes, I, I guess we should say what the film is. Mandy, starring Nicolas Cage. Absolutely starring Nicolas Cage. Yeah. My God, what did we watch? <laughs> I feel like it's one of those films where you're watching the lead actor and going, there's no acting happening. This is just this person. It was a gorgeous docudrama. And <laughs> the, the lighting came entirely from within Nick Cage's soul. Yeah. Uh, it was glorious. Um, an absolute masterclass in subtlety is not necessary when, in fact, we can just make you feel everything at once. It was so good. I'm still unpacking. Uh, so, so you bring horror to the stage. Like, a lot of the stuff that I've seen you produce is horror or horror adjacent. So there's uh, Subsist, which is that show you wrote about zombies. And you also bought and then produced a new run of that show, Father of Lies, starring yep. Griffin and Jones. What is it about horror in a theatrical setting that you find appealing? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, there's a couple of things, actually. Um, so one is that I love horror as a genre. I like its flexibility. I like the way that I think quite uniquely it can sit there and deal with everything from kitchen sink drama all the way to actually quite broad comedy, all the way back to, yeah, you know, Grongagnol and having blood across a stage or just really small moments of thrill or chill, not necessarily pure heart-stopping horror. Um, uh, yeah, I love the flexibility of the genre. I like how much you can present under that broad church of mm. horror. Um, the second bit for me is... I suppose it sounds a little bit like trying to pick a fight. Um, is I like it, again, on that fringe scale mm -hmm. because I think it, again, epitomises what you can achieve with low budgets short time frames more about talent and content and that's not to say that big stage productions like women in black are not absolutely effective i love that show it's a great right. piece of theater um 
but obviously it shows you exactly what you can achieve when you have complete control of a theatre with trapdoors and runs and gangways and you can do all this, that and the other because you've got the budget and the time. Um, it's just kind of the same way I end up feeling about musical theatre because I think quite a lot of musical theatre, West End musical theatre, Broadway musical theatre is an exercise in showing you the, the golden rule. If you've got enough budget, you can pretty much achieve anything, um, which is great and amazing and it's so good to see a live spectacle. Uh, but very few of us have that budget. So I love horror on stage in a fringe small f right. setting because I think it again presents opportunities and challenges where you get to be really creative about your solutions to them. It's it's sort of like uh, I saw a production of Mr. Man, which is a one-man show starring Killian Murphy uh, at the Dumbo Theater or something, somewhere in Brooklyn, New York. And the show was, it was a, it was a tremendous performance, a towering performance. He was incredible, but the, to call it a one-man show is really a misnomer because it, it was the work of dozens of people. You know, the, the thing, all the things that were triggered, you know, there's a balloon drop at one scene and there, you know, there's a fire and there was all of these things happening off stage and sound cues and lighting cues and all that kind of stuff, which, as you said, like, it's this huge budget that makes a thing which, if it had just been played as a one man in a very small room, you know, an audience of 20, 30 would have been, I think, equally as affecting based on his performance. Yeah. But it's like his performance is almost lost in this, all of this stuff. It's sort of the miasma of theater. Right. Yeah. Whereas like that show that you produced, um, Father of Lies, you know, it's, it's two guys stood there with a old time, uh, an old fashioned uh, slide projector, just clicking through slides, talking about stuff in a very um, lo-fi way. And yet when they get to the bits of the show where they're telling you these horrible supernatural stories, it's so much more affecting because it's not someone who's actually trying to show you something, you know, th th like, I think that's one of the things with fringe small F is you can't, have a 30-foot dinosaur come rampaging through the room. No, no, you can't. That's it. And so because you can't, how do you get to that same level of feeling? And if you can get to that same level of feeling, it's much more effective because if we see a 30-foot dinosaur rampage through a scene in a film, we go CGI. And, you know, it, it, there's still that layer of disconnect. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas I think you're right. If you're doing it on the small scale, you have had to affect your audience completely. Um, and the hope then is, I guess the hope then is that you've got people leaving the theater with something that hangs with them, that stays and doesn't stay in the roller coaster sense where right. you're still running on the adrenaline thrill and maybe craving that thrill again. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's not necessarily you with a ling a lingering moment. Um, right. And I think sometimes that's the stuff with some of the big budget stage horror is it's a roller coaster, right? Which is cool. And I yeah. love roller coasters. I love them. Um, I mean, fun fairs are my third favorite thing in the world. Um, uh, but yeah, I think when you do a small scale piece of horror, since that's what we're talking about. You know, I think all theatre can be affecting, obviously. But I think you've got this opportunity for an emotional connection to mm. the audience because you've been so intimate, so close, that hopefully 
it's still with them the following morning after that bad night's sleep and hopefully it's still with them a week later maybe and they're telling their friends and right i think that's amazing i think it's amazing to have something that connects like that that's not just connecting on the purely visceral you know in that sort of shock bang there's claret all over the stage type moment but is a really attaching itself to you on a fundamental emotional basis that's exciting that's really exciting well it's it's sort of like a a good magic show is almost as much about what the audience creates in their own minds after they see it as when they see the show on stage yeah Uh, so I saw another show that you produced called Metamorphosis and in that there's so much tell not show but it's tell in such a way that when you remember it later you remember seeing things that didn't happen in the show yeah yeah i'd agree with that i mean that's the script's very lyrical it's very beautifully written uh sam chittenden is an exceptional author and playwright and heather rose andrew's performance is so strong and again so well paced Mm -hmm. um but you know me and Heather worked together a lot on that show over the last year. We've toured it a fair bit. Um, I get to tech it, which mm-hmm. is really exciting. So I run all the lights, and it's a very organic experience. It's so that show is different every day, right? Um, and that's not to say that it's not a controlled piece of work. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. But the temperature of the room, you know, what the audience are giving back as Heather pushes into them, is really interesting. The difference in that show when it's a full house to when it's a smaller house um and we've had big discussions about the fact that sometimes we actually feel those smaller houses can be the better show uh, because there's just this different way that we're interacting with that that moment for them um and all the lighting states are again very much paced to Heather's performance. So the the whole room is operating constantly in a very live sense, which I know sounds like a ridiculous thing to say. It's theatre, of course it's live. But rather than, this is the cue, now is the cue, next cue, right. move on. Um, which, you could run the show that way. You know, right. the cues are all in the tech sheet and you could run that show. Um, you know, Heather is standing there, she has said this, now drop the light. But there's a difference in actually the sound we're going to keep going for an extra beat we're going to pull that light down a little slower because that's where she's gotten to and i think there's an immersion there that the audience don't even necessarily realize they're getting right which is sort of the wonder and bane of creating that sort of work isn't it where if you've done it really well they don't notice they do they completely know but they don't realize what they know but that's kind of the trick Yeah, it's one of those things where if, if you've done it right, no one knows. Yeah. Yeah, nobody notices. But all they've done is notice. All they've done is know what you've done. It's just you've hit them emotionally rather than cognitively. So you also produce venues, yes. not just shows, which seems like, you know, the, the very limited amount of production that I've done, it just seems like the most thankless, like... <laughs> not worthwhile thing to be doing and yet you've been doing it for 10 years now about. yeah a decade um and i don't yeah. mean that in an insulting way it's just like i know what goes into putting on one event let alone 70 in the course of a month and it just it, the the maths of it doesn't quite add up for me so what is it about that that you're like 
was as he said, grand this seems idiot. A good yeah. Yeah. Oh god, I don't know how to answer that one without sounding like either uh, we need to talk about who hurt me or um, <laughs> <laughs> um, or should I have my meds adjusted? Um, why do you do it? Uh, that is a that's a storming question. Stop. <laughs> you've done two good ones. Now the rest have to all be fluff. Um, <laughs> It's not thankless. It is thankless and it's not thankless. It's it's really complicated. I think and you know, we'll just to heck with it, you know, we're two friends talking, there just happens to be a recorder in the middle of right. it. Um I think there is a small portion of performers, there's a small portion of audiences who can make it thankless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely because they're so inside their own heads they are bringing their own weather that's probably the best way of explaining it because i don't think that they're fundamentally bad people i don't think that they're unpleasant people i think that they're people who turn up so insular before you've started that you're never going to get anywhere and nothing's ever going to work because they've come with a set of expectations that they've not shared with you that they probably haven't shared with themselves and that can make it really difficult I think you've got, as ever, a spectrum that sits in the middle who swing from the utilitarian nature of you have given me what I want, thank you very much, I do the thing, Um, that then swings and drifts up to the, ah, this is pretty cool, thank you so much. And then you get, thankfully, a larger but still a minority number of performers and audiences who take the time to actually turn and go, wow, you guys did all of that. Mm -hmm. and we really appreciate it and thank you and the thing is we don't do it for the thanks you don't otherwise you'd be really bitter you know i've worked with people who do get themselves hung up on that in the venue trade and they don't understand why people cannot see what they've done for them um and all you can say is well because they're so busy seeing the thing that they're doing themselves that it's really hard for them to get out from underneath that's really difficult you know and as someone who makes work, you know, I write, I direct, I produce. Um, once upon a time, I even acted. Um, and I still tech shows, and I still design light, and I still design sound. And I know it's making me sound like some sort of one-man marching band, but I think if you're in it long enough, you end up doing bits of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've sat and done the graphic design for people's flyers. I've sat and done the graphic design for people's flyers, and they don't even realise I've had to do it. <laughs> you know, because they send you so many bits that nothing works that I right. end up having to tear it all apart and rebuild it for them and then their flyers magically appear and in their heads that's what they sent and and it's not it's just they don't know how to use those programs and they don't understand and it's really difficult again there's a, there's a thing you know you're sitting there wanting them to put their best foot forward mm-hmm. and they send you a flyer that they've built in word and it's just text and they've dropped in some clip art and you're sitting going oh god you've just spent all this money coming to a festival Mm -hmm. and i'm not getting into what they've paid us in rent but we're just talking about they've traveled they've got accommodation right they're looking to they're about to pay to print that piece of right of design and it is still design yeah it's just not good design 
Um, so you feel really responsible for trying to help them because you don't want anybody to have a bad time. Um, you don't ever turn around to anybody and tell them that they're going to make money and that they're going to leave with gold shoes and they're going to leave with some amazing West End deal because that's ridiculous. And especially doing Fringe, capital F. Um, that's a huge misnomer and a big thing to discuss in general about what that all means. Why do we do Fringe? I think that's a, as big a question as any let alone me doing venues why do all of us do it but um, what you want to make sure is that they have the best possible opportunity for positive experiences Mm -hmm. so I guess going back to the main question why do it thankless task um, it's because you want to make the world a bit of a better place it's the only reason to be involved in any of this and I like to believe that everybody involved in our business started out there with that being their main precept um, how that follows through to the reality and how their futures all then played out from each of their individual starting points we can debate again separately um, hopefully without any litigation um, but yeah fundamentally you want to give people a platform mm-hmm. You want to give them the opportunity to put their best work forward in the best possible way. And yeah, maybe that is a bit thankless, but wouldn't it be a lot worse if we didn't? You know? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the world would be just a little bit darker and a little bit, to be blunt, shitter. (laughs) Um, If we didn't try to give each other the opportunity to get that stuff out there. And then it's nothing to do with what then the content is, is it? It's whether that work is to make you laugh, cry, sing, think, escape, whatever it is. Oh, I want it out there and I want to see it happen. That's the best thing. It's it's interesting talking about like that the specific thing you said about what do you want to get out of it? Because I, I do, I talk to so many artists who are like oh, the, the Scotsman haven't come to review me or, oh, yeah. this producer that I was hoping would come look at my work doesn't really seem interested or whatever. And it, I mean, <clears throat> I definitely have the gigs and the festivals throughout my year where I am hoping to get something out of it. Either mm-hmm. like this festival is giving me a big fat check that's going to fund the next six months of gigs for the love or whatever. But it's, especially at Edinburgh Fringe, people come in with such expectations. Even people who've done it for years who should know better. Oh my gosh, they can be the worst ones, actually. Um, Especially if they've become fixated on a thing. Yeah. This one thing that must occur. Otherwise, why did I bother breathing in and out, let alone turning up to the Fringe? Yeah. Yeah. I I, And for for me, I think the, 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 the peak result of the last six seven years that i've spent coming to edinburgh fringe happened this past thursday night so i'm here in dundee visiting you and annie and and michelle and and lynn and norris and all of my dundee friends and i have all these dundee friends because i came to fringe because i've been coming back to fringe and the the friendship has deepened and we've all gotten closer and we know each other better we've watched each other grow and change Mm -hmm. in our work I have this connection so I come up to Dundee and because I know Lynn and Lynn and I have played some trad music together just in the moments where you can snatch a little bit of time together during Fringe Lynn knows that I like trad music and brought me to a trad session at the Fisherman 
Fisherman's Pub. Fisherman's Tavern. Fisherman's Tavern. Ferry. Yeah. Check it out. <laughs> they do excellent food. <laughs> and so we, we ended up there on Thursday night, and I ended up playing for f- over four hours in a session with all of these local trad musicians from here, including this guy named Jack, who's 94 years old, who, you know, knows these old songs from well before I was born, from well before my parents were born. And he's singing these these old songs and, and getting to find that moment is why I work at Fringe because it's through Fringe and for me that I meet the people who are into the things that I like and can help me find the best versions of the things that I like or are who are presenting the best versions of the yeah. things that I like. An amazing thing. I was thinking about this the other day actually when you were talking about playing with Jack and it's not just that you get his 94 years it's that you inherently must get his parents songs because they're the things he learned as a kid Mm -hmm. so that means you're getting over a century's worth of music and thoughts and ideas put into a ditty Um, and that's intense that's amazing what a moment what a lovely thing to have um and that's a shared experience that's Mm -hmm. his shared experience of his family and his traditions and the thing that obviously got him into trad music whatever you know i I get people can debate that a bit about what trad is um in scotland you get absolute raging arguments about what constitutes that sort of music which arguably then says well surely therefore if you're all arguing so hard about it all of it uh (laughs) congratulations you all made very pertinent and salient points um but I was thinking about that, yeah, that there's this guy who inherently represents a repository of stories and songs that stretch over triple figures of, of years. I mean, that's amazing. And that's exactly exactly what you're talking about when, when we do Fringe and we make these connections. We gain culturally, societally. I know this all sounds very, you know, Oh, there he goes. He's saying all the right words as if he's filling out a funding application. Um, but it's actually true. You know, you walk off now with the last sort of six, seven years of knowing us mm-hmm. with a whole bunch of Scottish nonsense in your head that you would never have had. Yeah. And I walk away with a bunch of Americana in my head that I never had before. And I like to think of myself as someone who has been across the states and met lots of people and pays attention and i read a lot and i listen a lot but that's not the same thing it's not the same thing as someone's actual experience and the delivery method is so different if we look at like if this is science and Mm. we're in a medical situation it's it's the difference between oh yes if you take this if you take this pill, it will deliver it to you in 30 minutes and it will be inside your system right. for the next six hours. Or you can take this nasal spray and it will take two hours to get into your system and it will last three hours. You know, it's that sort yeah. of thing, isn't it? You're getting a totally different delivery system which has an entirely different effect on your brain. And that's cool. <laughs> it's really cool. We literally, in the nicest sense, change each other's minds. And that's yeah. gorgeous. Well, and <laughs> I just get the delivery system like fringe epi pen yeah the epi, <laughs> i was gonna say fringe is, is in uh, uh uh pulp fiction where he has to stab <laughs> through her through it right into her chat like right through the yeah uh, her sternum and just <laughs> just wake up screaming 
hypodermic every, sticking out of her chest every going. morning at fringe oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> both of us have rueful faces um uh, so i guess the 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 one other thing that i have been keen to talk to you about for this podcast is you sell co- or you run a comics <laughs> distrib- distribution thing oh that's random to jump to isn't it um yeah yeah i do um i have <laughs> unexpected <laughs> let's jump off to here well um, no it, it connects for me because not only are you are you in the somewhat difficult and nebulously worthwhile world of fringe production but you also are still attached to print media and niche print media at that. The difficult and nebulous world of comic books and the ever-dwindling buying patterns of them. Um, Because remember folks, Marvel movies don't sell comics. Uh, True fact. (laughs) Um, Yeah, um, I have I've had a lifelong love of comic books. Um, I think there's quite a uniquely British way, um, certainly like I I am I am forty now. Well, forty one. God, that happened this year, didn't it? Um, and I think there's there's a sort of period of age that I'm probably at the very tail end of, mm-hmm. where there's a quite a unique way in which British kids got into simultaneously British and American comic books. Um, so. Yeah, we would we would get American comic books would turn up in newsagents in the UK, and certainly in like little post offices and mm-hmm. near me where I lived um, in Sterling, uh, where I grew up. Um, and basically, what happened was American comic books got used as ballast for ships, so there were a way for them to balance off the weight in freight ships. Mm-hmm. So we would get American comic books, um, you know, exactly the way you would expect them, proper American comic books. Um, but you wouldn't know if you'd get the next issue <laughs> because it would just be whatever turned up in your post office or the news right. agent that got the supply because they weren't being shipped in a formal or organised manner they were just getting chucked in and then sold right. through John Menzies or whoever was supplying them because they are actually just helping them to get boxes of pens across that uh-huh. sort of thing um, and the other thing that you would get is British reprints of American comics um, which were in the British format which um, in America gets referred to as treasury or golden age format so right. they're magazine sized um, slightly off of a standard magazine they're a bit squarer um, mm-hmm. very cool format always a newsprint um, if you got lucky there'd be four pages like a, a, a one sheet in the middle mm-hmm. which would be the full colour glossy so you'd end up having this black and white reprint of 12 pages of an issue of Spider-Man from the 60s and four out of those 12 pages would be in colour <laughs> and the rest of it is a colouring book um, and so we would consume American comic books on fortnightly or monthlies and it would take us the best part of a year to get through four issues mm-hmm. that sort of thing so we had to be very patient about how we read American comic books in every sense of it um, and alongside that those, those British comics that were doing reprints also produced new material Mm-hmm. So there's a uniquely British strand of Americana, which is amazing. You know, there are there are Spider-Man comic strips and the Hulk comic strips, and um, when you get into the '80s and hit the sort of the toy comic boom like Transformers and mm-hmm. Zoids, 
whole British strand of them that was that essentially became we'd gotten ahead of the American material because they went to weekly formats. Right. So you have to create more. So right. it's this weird hybrid and it's amazing. And I think kids my age and a little bit before had this amazing approach to what comics were. So all of this stuff sat beside, and then also sat beside things like 2000 AD and Eagle mm. and all of these other very British boys comics, whatever the hell that was supposed to mean. Um, probably held more credence then than it thankfully does now. Um, and yeah, comic books were a big part of that. You know, my mum would go down to the post office and buy me random American comic books. Um, New Mutants issue 29. There you go. That, that sticks in my head. Bill Sankovic on art. Oh my goodness, changed my life. Um, Walt Simonson issues of Thor. Stuff like that. Uh -huh. Amazing. Like proper. The stuff that people hold up and go, oh my God, you need to read this stuff. Right. Was fortunately the stuff that I was getting handed when I was far too young probably in some respects as much as oh it's a kid's product i was right. probably a couple of years too young especially for looking at stuff like the way new mutants was written um yeah mental um and then when i was 13 i started working in a comic shop the first comic shop that was in my hometown um it sadly went under as many comic shops do and when i was 18 i i opened one of my own uh because grand high idiot um and since then, I've never stopped. I've always, I've always sold comic books because um, mm. I love them. Um, I mean, it's a ridiculously tough business from a retail perspective. That's why I think when you go into so many comic shops now, they're half toy shop, right? A quarter t-shirt shop. The merch is far more important. Mm -hmm. That's because they've had to. You know, the, the actual print is print media, right? It's really hard to sell, and you look at what used to make a comic book a number one comic book in the 90s and what the cancellation points used to be in the 90s and these days the comics that are in the top 100 are all largely either teetering at the edge of or below what used to be cancellation mm -hmm. back in the day so yeah it's a very small market very niche but it's great oh man i love comics but uh, you know I, I think to kind of tie it back to fringe and you know small f is is the fact that comics are the only uh medium that i personally still pay into regularly mm -hmm. like i'll go to the i'll go to the cinema or you know i'll buy a dvd if there's a film i really want to encourage and support i'll buy the the dvd or the blu-ray or whatever um but i always have two or three books on a monthly subscription yeah and i think for me it's because with a book like uh uh jeff lemire's uh royal city or uh it's, there's always a jeff lemire book in my, my that seems pile. fair yeah, yeah his work is superb or uh uh there's a there's a book called manifest destiny that i've been reading it's like yeah manifest Destiny's great yeah uh or uh manhattan projects or whatever there's these yeah. these books from some of the smaller publishers where i feel like my individual purpose purchase really has a direct connection to the artist in a way that you know if you again if you go to the cinema yes it does eventually support over 2,000 jobs or whatever but generally comics are a smaller team like something like yeah. Manifest Destiny I think it's three or four people doing everything and that letters column they still have a letters column and yeah they do boy howdy does it get feisty because people really care yeah because people get invested because it's so personal and i i think that's you can draw a very direct line between comics and 
fringe shows and fringe style shows because of how personal it can be. I completely agree with that. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting. You know, we're, we're sitting in Dundee. We're talking about theater. We're talking about comics, and Dundee's very much a comic book oriented city. You know, DC Thompson's based here, where a lot of British comic books come from. You mm-hmm. know, um, more traditional strip books like Orwelly and the Bruins, very Scottish, and right. the Beano, the Dandy, very famous kids comics. Um, but also, you know, they they publish, um, they still publish things like Commando, which are these little square books black and white war comics they used to do a book called star blazer which was a sci-fi comic in the same format um and our university does you know you can do degrees in comic books which is amazing mm-hmm. really fascinating stuff um and that also means there's an industry growing where people are thankfully beginning to eke out their living comic books zines you know mm-hmm. that sort of scene there's a a homebrew and beyond which is amazing and I love it and I think you're absolutely right it's very similar to that sort of fringe mindset because you've got to make it all yourself you've got to produce that product and then to produce that product you're the one who has to find how you get it out there mm-hmm. and that is a very fringy thing isn't it you know when you look at that as a type of theatre form you're trying to find the venue that you can put it on in rather than the venue is seeking you out you know you're not being commissioned you're the person that's created a piece or you're the team of people who have created a piece and now you have to find a stage to put it on a printer that will publish it all of that sort of thing and it's yeah it's a very similar thing and that does mean you're absolutely right the the purchase that you make of those three comic books per month is largely directly connecting back to those creators in the same way that when you purchase a ticket to a friend show the majority of that cash is going to help that creative or a creative group mm-hmm. to keep going. Um, it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. I think people forget that. I think people forget the. And I think that may come from. He says not quite finishing that sentence. Um, that may come from the the cinema feel where your money feels diluted or disconnected from what it actually will eventually do. Mm-hmm. Um, which is difficult because it is abstracted because the production system. All of those people have been paid. Yeah. It's already happened. Right. What you're doing is paying back the company who paid them. Right. To make it worth their while to have paid them. And I think we abstract that and go, oh, well, you're paying the big faceless corporation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that big faceless corporation paid 2,000 people to make that film. And they won't make another film if they haven't recouped the money from that film. Because eventually they go, this is bad business. Mm -hmm. We would be better off just selling computer games or whatever is their other parts of their core business or simply being shot mm-hmm. um, and I think people forget that I think it's easy to lose lose that idea of what we're doing in purchasing art and I'm using that there for its broadest sense you know like you say buying buying a copy of a film on a blu-ray is purchasing art mm-hmm. you know I don't think either of us are arguing that my purchase of Mandy um, on Blu-ray was the right thing to do. Uh, it blew our freaking minds. <laughs> and I don't object, therefore, to the 12 quid that that cost right. going back to the faceless entity that ultimately, though, paid all the money to allow me to watch it and made sure that those people, those artists and artisans who created that film got paid in the first place. 
we get probably a little bit lost sometimes in the face of paying into that system, paying directly to coalface working artists, and we start either making one better than the other or redirecting that. We're naturally what we should probably just be engaging with is we should be paying for the art. Right. And making sure that that art can continue, whatever the model is. And we can then absolutely have huge arguments about should production company X or venue Y make as much money as they do or don't make from taking risk or no risk? Because, you know, that's a thing in Fringe. Who's taking the risk? Um, is that argument, should we separate out that argument from paying a cool face artist? Probably not, because ultimately all that money needs to go back into the system to make sure the art keeps happening. What we should then probably debate is who takes what cut here, there, and everywhere, and is the artist, the original artist, getting the money they should have gotten, or the correct amount of control that they should have. I don't deny, and I completely agree with, there is obviously a much stronger connection moment where you feel that your ticket money or your purchase money has largely gone straight to the artist. Mm -hmm. And I do think we need to be much more engaged with that because those arguments that exist about cuts and fair, equitable, small e, um, payments to artists via production companies, etc., they're totally valid and they need to be had and debated. Um, and yeah, when you have the opportunity to really do it on grassroots level, you should because also those artists are not in a system that is there to support them yet. So they've mm -hmm. not been picked up by production company X. So they're not getting to have the debate about whether they got paid enough money out of that deal. They don't have that opportunity yet to even begin to worry about that contract. They are making raw work and need support. Mm -hmm. We should be doing that. We should all be out there supporting your local sheriff. Of course you should, because it's exciting and it's new and they are trying desperately to get that voice heard and you know what maybe it's not the greatest piece of work right but the second piece of work might be a bloody masterpiece and they don't get the opportunity to do that if you haven't come and watched that first one right um and that's it's why i struggle sometimes with some of the concepts that float around in fringe and i realize people are gonna harangue me for saying it but you know i i have issues with the term free fringe Mm -hmm. because I think it trains an audience to think that the work doesn't need to be paid for and I think it leaves the artist in a place where they have to perfect a bucket speech to convince people to pay for the work that they've just watched Yeah. rather than the audience coming in pre-prepped that they're supposed to pay and there is an expectation of remuneration to the artist because they've just given you an hour of their work mm -hmm. and I think there is a, a real risk in constantly banging away at the word free mm -hmm. because I think it especially when you've got like shows happening in a pub environment it kind of values the price of a beer ahead of the price of the show because they've been trained to buy a beer right but they've not been trained to buy a show it is, it is interesting going to some of the free some of the free friend shows like the artist totally has their rhythm and it's great gotcha. and they're having a great time but I have been to some of the free friend shows where it's like the artist is new to the environment or whatever. And it's like audience comes in. Every single audience member has a drink. Yeah. 
So they've all spent at least five quid a piece because yeah. festival prices, like a beer costs more. It's ridiculous. But everybody comes in. They've all spent all that money. And then they, they give the artist like nothing. Yeah. So they're spending money. They're just not spending money on the artist. Nope. And I really struggle with that. It's it's something that I've experienced too. Like, and this is a this is a slightly different model, but like I'll be doing a show at a bar in the states, and I'll finish my show, and someone will be like, "Can I buy you a drink?" But they don't want to buy my CD, or or put money in the hat or the bucket or anything like that. They, which is just again, they've been taught to buy booze, but not yeah. buy art. They've been taught to buy booze, and I think also something that happens at that moment is they've been taught to give you a clap in the back and tell you well done son mm -hmm. didn't you do well yeah let me buy you a beer <laughs> or alternatively give me eight dollars and i can go and buy a loaf of bread yeah and maybe some butter <laughs> i'm gonna have me a sandwich time <laughs> um isn't that exciting <laughs> imagine imagine you know <laughs> you could eat for three or four days I know or you could have a slight hangover yeah uh, but it's it's weird we've we've devalued individual artists mm -hmm. massively and I don't want anybody who listens to this thinking that I'm against the concept of free fringe as a model I, I run a paid venue that's what I do but I think there's a lot of good things that come out of free fringe it's amazing stuff and it's an opportunity um loads of discussion about should everybody does it do it but then there's the same discussion about should everybody comes to my venue be right. there um have they come with work that's ready right you know um i like to think we've got an extra layer because we're asking more questions mm -hmm. um but still people shine you and they turn up with work that you're going yeah everything in your application form and all of the supporting materials you sent me do not seem to be the show that you've brought uh oh crap <laughs> we're gonna have a tough time but um, I think it's a higher majority of right. that that's available in Free Fringe because people go, oh, it's free for me to put my show on. Right. Forgetting that it isn't, they have to be there. Right. Or actually there's a bit of an emotional or physical toll because the things you've done to save money mean that you're sleeping on a couch or on the floor mm -hmm. of someone who actually didn't think you were staying for three and a half weeks. Right. And you're burning out a friendship or you, all these things right, right. that happen. And oh my God, you know, even when you do it right, it's hard. Yeah. And when you do it wrong, it can go chonky so quick. Um, but yeah, I think all of that aside, it's how we, I know it sounds like some sort of weird, we can make your pets react better to you. Um, how we train our audiences. Yeah. And actually it is important though, because they've been taught that art isn't valuable. They get taught that every time a government cuts funding or slashes access to a library or anything like that mm -hmm. people are constantly taught and they don't realize they're being taught that art and culture do not matter right they're the thing that you cut first they're soft targets they're low-hanging fruit we don't need them and of course they're exactly the thing you need when things are difficult or grim information and experiential times are what people actually run on because that's the thing that stops you going it's nine to five and then I go back and I eat a poor dinner because I don't eat enough I don't earn enough money to pay for something better and all those things that diminish you as a person that you forget can be made a little bit better because you see a firework display right. on the 5th of November and 
are a little bit better because of that street carnival that happened and you get a quality of life that was given to you for free because you could walk into your local museum and look at some art mm -hmm. and people may go oh yeah but that's not food on the table no but it is the nourishment of the mind and your heart that is necessary um to remind you that it isn't just the daily grind that it isn't just oh it's mince and tatties on the table again because i couldn't afford anything else this week and it's you know it's seven days until payday um but that fact that then you had that resource that you were able to at least you know walk in see some stuff that reminded you of your childhood you know we myself and strangely obviously went to the mcmanus gallery yesterday which is dundee's local town city rather museum um and it's amazing but um we were talking about it and you were rightly pointing out the the weird things that end up in a city museum that would never be in a national museum because they matter to the locals and it's a story to talk to people who have never been before and it's also a story to retell yourselves mm -hmm. imagine you didn't have that resource and all you had was your workaday life and that feeling of drudge it'd be sad and we've forgotten to value it i think in the way that we should I don't think that's everywhere. You know, I think I'm I'm very lucky. I live in I live in Dundee, which is a very culturally focused city, and takes a lot of pride in making sure these things exist for people to go into because it knows the inherent value of happiness, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that kind of is it. You know, happiness and knowledge and freedom to educate, um, but that also means that yeah, we should be in a position where there is affordable art because um, not everything can be free because people do need to eat and we need to value that and we need to remember to keep reteaching ourselves that there is a value to going to that special exhibit at a museum or paying to see a musician play or going to that piece of theatre that you wouldn't normally take the gamble on but do you know what they've maybe come up with a price structure that is such that it's only costing you a fiver you'd buy a pint yeah. But you wouldn't go and spend an hour watching someone entertain you mm -hmm. for the same value. That seems weird because, you know, that first fiver, the one you spent on a beer, you will literally piss up against the wall within that hour. Yeah. So what was the point? <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> I, I honestly can't think of a better way to, to end this. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Oh no! Something bright and beautiful. Oh God! Uh... No, but, but I, I think I think that is a bright and beautiful point. That a piece of art is something that not always, but has the potential to be something you carry with you, with you for the rest of your life. It absolutely is. You know, I I think back to the shows that I've seen at high school when theaters would get brought in. Yeah, uh, theater companies rather. Um, the first time I ever saw Midsummer Night's Dream was mm -hmm. a school's tour. Yeah. Yeah. That helped shape my life because you saw these people doing something that you'd just never seen people do before. Um, when I was a kid attending my sister being in a production of Pirates of Penzance as her high school production. Mm -hmm. um, and it looked great. And yeah. in my head, it looked a million dollars. I know the reality of that probably is not what right. I remember, but isn't isn't memory beautiful because it fixes things right so i know that every one of those costumes and that entire set was sumptuous and would have belonged on any stage right because
because I was a kid and I don't remember it fully. I just remember seeing my sister singing on stage and it was amazing. It Beautiful. was cool. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you for listening to me dribble on. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a thought. Go make a thing. Why not? I can't stop thinking about Anna Anthropy's admonition that the best way to change the cultural landscape around ourselves is to make our own artworks. I love the fact that she provided a detailed rundown of a half dozen different game creation tools toward the end of her book. It wasn't just her inclusion of the software Twine that inspired me to go code the bus game. The program was also featured in an exhibit I saw at the Dundee V&A Museum. The exhibition was titled Video Games, Design, Play, Disrupt, and showed parts of the design process of eight video games ranging in level from big budget productions like Bloodborne and Journey on down to small mobile apps made by solo developers. Through the exhibition, I found a game called Kentucky Route Zero, which is a choose-your-own-adventure game based on the architecture Twine makes possible for anyone to access. I was hooked by not only the storytelling of KRZ, but also by the possibilities for storytelling through Twine. I sat down and fiddled with Twine for a few hours, and once I'd gotten the hang of the basic tools it included, I set a timer for three hours. That's how long it took me to write the bus game. And the whole game is mine. The story is mine, the situations are mine, the structure is mine, and it feels good. I'm not saying the game is good, that's up to the player to decide for themselves, but the act of making it, of putting it out there, feels good. Not all art has to be torture. Sure, every artist and creative person has that thing inside them that takes work to get out, but it's not always that. Sometimes you just want to make a wee little thing for fun and put it out and hope that someone enjoys it. I wish there was more of this kind of art in the world. I think we need more of that kind of art right now. Sure, a whole novel might be a bit beyond your personal level as a writer right now, but how about a short story? or perhaps a piece of flash fiction. I was unsure I'd ever be able to write a novel, and then I set myself a challenge. To write at least 100 words a day for 100 days. To put that in perspective, you've probably sent a dozen texts twice that size today. If not, then congrats. You are my dad, and I love you. I managed to finish the challenge in 108 days. Not too bad. The end result? I'd written 10,000 words, which is one-fifth of a novel, according to the NaNoWriMo folks who set the desired word count at 50,000. The idea for my personal challenge came from reading about Terry Pratchett's composition of the first Discworld book. He wrote it in chunks of 300 words per day. First thing when he got home from work, he would put the kettle on and write 300 words. As soon as he hit 300 words, he would stop, even if he was mid-sentence. That way, the page was fresh when he returned to it. In fact, he often had his next 300 words planned out by the time he sat down. After a year, he typed the end, having only written 200 words that day. Doggedly, he fed a fresh sheet into his typewriter and wrote the first 100 words of his next book. The little stuff stacks up. I don't know what your thing is. It could be music, it could be film, it could be comics. Whatever it is, set a timer for a reasonable amount of time and sit down and make a thing. It doesn't have to be great. You don't have to show it to anybody. You just have to finish it quick and see how it feels. As a side benefit, doing an exercise like this will also help you build creative endurance. 
Maybe it's only a 10 minute writing session per day for your first month, but over time you'll find that you will use, indeed crave, 20 minutes or more. Go make a thing, and if you feel so inclined, feel free to share it with me. Send it along to me, and if there's a way to, and you're keen, I'll share it with the folks who listen to this podcast. But if you don't want to share, that's cool too. You do you. Seriously, if we all spend a little more time making, we'll be spending a little less time chasing the dopamine of BS that is the modern media landscape, social or otherwise. And that, that's a good thing to strive for, right? I hope so. I'm writing this on an airplane, so I have no idea if it's any good. I need more coffee. Hokey fright. Have you heard about Pontypool? Oh gosh, where to start with this? The first night of staying with JD, he asked what I wanted to do. I know JD has an extensive collection of science fiction and horror films, and since I feel like my tastes in sci-fi run pretty eclectic, I went for horror. My exact words were, well JD, why don't you start listing your favorite horror films, and the first one we get to that I've not seen, we'll watch. Without skipping a beat, JD said, ah, so we're watching Pontypool then. Pontypool is the story of an early morning shock jock. Is that still a term? Whatever you call those morning radio hosts who say whatever pops into their heads to keep people listening. Anyways, this radio guy is in the studio reporting on the local news and weather and whatnot. A huge blizzard blows in, and then reports of something far worse start coming across his desk. The people in town are changing into something violent. This isn't specifically a zombie film, as the virus seems to be transmitted via the spoken word. With a certain combination of sounds entering the human mind and producing a destructive, fugue-like state. The zombification particulars aside, though, what makes this film stand out is the setting. This is a tightly written, low-budget thriller that knows exactly what it wants to be. It's a bottle episode along the lines of classic Twilight Zone or Astounding Stories tales. A single location that manages to keep upping the ante. Even before the outbreak happens, the atmosphere building on this film is wonderful. The radio host's 3am drive to the studio being the only glimpse we get of the wider world. A dark road with swirling snowflakes obscuring visibility. Once at work, the interviews and characters surrounding him grow ever more bizarre, lending the proceedings an off-kilter feel. But it's not all mood-building and comic banter. When things come together for the finale, the gore and action are more than equal to the build-up they've received. If you like zombie films, dark comedy, bottle episodes, or offbeat horror, this might be the film for you. I'm not saying it's good, but at least now you've heard about it. Mailbag. So on last week's episode, I promised that I had received another thing in the mail that I was going to talk about on the podcast. Uh, Where to start with this? This also has no return address, but the stamps on it are from Canada. And they're really cool, like, haunted Canada stamps. So one is, like, uh, sort of a Grim Reaper type sitting in a wagon drawn by a cow. And the other is, like, a a ghost of a brakeman, like, on a train. Uh, The front of this license plate, it's like a plastic uh, license plate. The front says, I break for nobody, (laughs) which is freaking amazing. Uh, it's a Washington State license plate that says I break for nobody. I had this in my suitcase because uh, I was going to talk about it a couple weeks ago on the podcast while I was in Scotland and then I forgot about it. And my suitcase got searched coming back into the U.S. at some point and everything had been put back exactly except for this uh, 
plastic license plate was placed on top. So when I opened my suitcase, it was right there. The first thing I saw, it was so funny. So I think probably when I <laughs> when my suitcase got searched, they were like, what the heck? So uh, yeah, thank you so much to whoever the listener was who sent this to me. I absolutely love this. If you've got a question for me or something you'd like to share with the other listeners of the podcast or you have a weird item that you'd love to get rid of, you know, some old taxidermy or your grandpa's hat or something, you can send that stuff to Strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. I look forward to hearing from you. Song of the Week, The Jakey's Quake. I wrote a song a few years back called Empty Bottle, and it included the line, I'm an empty bottle of Buckfast out on the bay. I wrote that line because I was at a really low point in my life, and I was sitting by the side of a a bay somewhere in uh, Scotland, and I was looking out over the water, and there was an empty bottle of Buckfast floating in the water, and I just, I felt like that empty bottle. Because the thing is, you never see an empty bottle of Buckfast. Buckfast is this caffeinated, sugary, tonic wine. It's like 18% alcohol or something. That is, it's you're meant to do like little shots of it for health, but it kind of is popular among certain segments of the Scottish population as sort of a party drink. Think something like Four Loco or Sparks. And the thing is, you never see an empty bottle of Buckfast on, on the uh, Instagram post and online stuff for this episode, I'll post a couple of photos that I've taken of bottles of Buckfast just lying on the ground on the sidewalk, and there's always a little bit of Buckfast in the bottom. No one ever makes it all the way through a bottle of Buckfast. You shouldn't. And so I saw that empty bottle, and I just, it struck an emotional chord with me. And the interesting thing is, is when I play the song most places in the States, people just go, oh yeah, like an empty bottle, emptied out so sad but when I played in in Scotland a lot of my friends laugh and it's a very funny song because they know that you don't empty a bottle of Buckfast that just generally doesn't happen so I wrote this song and I play it in Scotland and my friends my friends love it and one of my friends Lynn Martin very dear friend of mine Uh, the one I went to some Scottish trad sessions with last week in Dundee had heard the song and was inspired and wrote this song, The Jakey's Quake, as sort of a tribute to Buckfast and as kind of a a conversation with my song. So I had written a song about Buckfast. She was inspired to write a song about Buckfast and she wrote this song hoping that I would sing it. And she and I just sang it together recently and... I'll sing it for you folks. So this is The Jakey's Quake. sadness, no reason for tears. 
Cause there's a drink we must pour you So put down your beers So drink up that bucky It's good for the soul Come join us, we'll drink it all out of one bowl it's purple, we're gonna get drunk. You can trust it, dear Buck Pass, cause it's made by monks. Oh, the fringe, it is over, and that's a bit shite. No worries, we're happy, cause we've got tonight. We'll drink and be merry, we'll all feel quite fine. There's a drink we must pour you, and it's tonic wine. So drink up that bucky, it's good for the soul. Come join us, we'll drink it all out of one bowl. It's messy, it's purple, we're gonna get drunk. You can trust it, dear Buck Pass, cause it's made by monks. So let's drink like it's Christmas 2005. So chug down that bucky, cause it fills a hole. And it always tastes better when subplayable. So drink up that bucky, it's good for the soul. Come join us, we'll drink it all out of one bowl. You can trust it, dear Buck Pass, cause it's made by monks. All the fringe is over, we're all going home. But with family like this, we are never alone. So let's all be happy and be of good cheer. For we'll meet again August and this time next year. So drink up that bucky, it's good for the soul. Come join us, we'll drink it all out of one bowl. It's messy, it's purple, we're gonna get drunk. You can trust it, dear Buck Pass, cause it's made. that about does it for this week's episode of strangely and friends the podcast thank you all so much for listening it's been a little weird getting these out as i've been traveling around but i'm going to be back in bellingham within the next two weeks and hopefully we'll be back on a regular schedule going into fall because i i love producing this podcast and i really appreciate all the notes and letters that i've gotten from you folks because it it's what keeps me going i appreciate it so much i also appreciate the folks who support me on Patreon. It It's not a lot that I get from Patreon, but the amount that comes in just absolutely makes this worth it, and it covers the cost of my web hosting and my editing software to put this together, and 
the studio where I usually record this. So thank you folks so much from the bottom of my heart. If you'd like to become a subscriber uh, and support this podcast, you can check out patreon.com strangely to find out how you can help me make more of whatever this is. This podcast is usually produced at Sonic Suitcase Studios, although today I am in my friends Sandy and Jonica's house in the guest room. So this podcast is produced in Sandy and Jonica's guest room in Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you all next week. So there's these two men in a desert. They have been walking for a couple of days and they're getting towards the end of, of hope now and traveling, traveling and up ahead, one of them sees what looks like a pitch of tents, um, some sort of marketplace. And the other guy's like, we're addled, you know, we've been out in the sun, it can't possibly be We'll, we'll head towards it anyway because what else is there to do right. we've got to go for it so they, they go and and they get in and lo and behold it is it's a market absolutely there it is oh my god this is this is amazing okay, we're saved so they go to the first stall uh, just have, we just need some water do you have any water and he, I'm, I'm terribly sorry no I, I don't have any water I, I, I've got custard I, I, I sell custard all I have is custard Okay, um, well, we'll try the next one. So they go to the next one. So water, water. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I, I don't, I don't have any water. All, all I've got are these, these sponges, little finger sponges. You, you, please eat as many as you like. Oh, we, we need water, not, not, not food. Go to the next one. Water, water. No, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I've, I've got, I've got these tinned fruits. I mean, we can, I can perhaps. Give you some of them, perhaps, maybe, but really water, not more sugar. So water, water to the next one. Again, no, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I, I can sell you some jelly. No, that, that's. So they go to the final stall. Water, please tell us you have some water. I'm, I'm so sorry. All, all I've got are small confections, hundreds and thousands, sugar strands. I'm, I'm so sorry. That's, that's all I've got. God, that's, that's ridiculous. And they walk away, and this one, one guy turns to the other and says, This is really weird. I mean, what, what weird market? And the other guy turns to the other You're right, it is a trifle bizarre. <laughs> I usually invite the guests back, but. Uh... <laughs> No, but come back anytime. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production.